Good morning, Crestview family. Welcome to Crestview Baptist Church this morning. Thank you for choosing to come worship with us. We are glad to have you here. If you are a visitor, we are especially glad to have you here today. And we would love to get to know more about you and your family. So we always ask if you're a first-time visitor, there's some cards in there, pew, that say visitor cards. If you could fill one of those out and drop it in the offering plate, just so we get to know you a little bit better. Maybe uh, follow up with you. Um, it's first Sunday in February, and as you can see by the bulletin, things are starting to ramp up for the new year. Um, the uh, senior adults are going... Uh, Tuesday, February 6th, looks like they're going to Sandra and Whitey's house for a meal and meet at the church at 4 o'clock if you want to do that. And uh, next Sunday, um, for the Sandra and Whitey's, and there's a sign-up sheet on the bulletin board for Sandra and Whitey's house. Um, next Sunday, uh, the youth are hosting a a, a Super Bowl uh, get-together, party, whatever. You, we're all going to sit around and eat and watch football. So... Um, everyone is welcome. Um, I always have several adults show up. They bring the best food. So um, I'll make sure there's plenty to eat. So if you want to come out to that, uh, it won't, probably won't span for the whole, uh, the whole Super Bowl because some of the youth and stuff have to get home. Um, I've got it from the 6.30 to 8.30. I'll probably be here around 6. So if you want to come and hang out and get ready, um, that, you're welcome to do that. Um, there's two spots in here about youth camp and kids camp. Um, she knows in the bulletin and you're interested in those, let me know as soon as possible so I can get you signed up and we can talk about deposits and getting those paid and get our spots locked in. Uh, don't forget we have our Wednesday night services here, 6 o'clock, 6.30. The adults up here in the, up here in the sanctuary, um, youth and children are down in the building at 6.30. So we'd love to have you for that. Uh, I'm just excited to, to see a lot of new faces. I'm excited to see everybody here. And uh, I just invite you at this time, I'm going to turn it over to Preacher Artie as we begin worshiping together in prayer. Good morning. Good morning. I hope everyone's doing great this morning. It is good to see you. Um, continue to pray. For uh, Rick Stowe, Rick is still in the hospital recovering from his uh, surgery to remove his kidney. Also continue to pray for Diane um, Jolly that is in the hospital as well. And then we have several others. Prayer sheets are out in the foyer of all the things that are going on within our church family to, uh, to pray about. But please, please pray for each other. We are commanded that we, that we are to... Bear one another's burdens. That means we don't take them away from each other, but that we help carry the load through prayer and for being there next to each other, walking arm in arm, following Jesus Christ as our Savior. But it is good see, to see everybody here this morning and I ask you as we begin our time of worship that you join me in prayer this morning as we begin. Our blessed Lord and Savior, we come before your throne. Lord, we come to you asking you to intervene in our lives. Lord, we come to you asking that your spirit move among your people this morning. That you open our ears so that we can hear and you open our hearts and our minds so that we can understand. And dear Lord, that you use our feet 
to go. Use our hands to love. And use our mouth to speak the truth of the gospel. Dear Lord, as we go through this service today, will you take all the cares of, the, of this world away from us just for this short time so that we can fully concentrate on you this morning. As Sandra and the choir lead us in worship, dear Lord, may we sing to the top of our lungs the praises to you. As Chad speaks to the children this morning, may he speak truth into their lives. Dear Lord, as he leads them in children's church, may your word touch their little hearts. And dear Lord, speak through me today as I bring your word. And dear Lord, above all, if there is someone here or listening on the internet that does not know you as their personal Savior, may the power of the Gospel reach them today. May the Spirit convict them today. And may they come to a life-changing knowledge by having a relationship with you. Dear Lord, May everything that's done and said here today bring honor and glory to your name. Have your way with us today. And it's in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our living Savior, we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we begin our worship service by singing hymn number 329, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Would you stand? <coughs>
Thank you. And at this time, we will continue worshiping by giving of our gifts, tithes, and offerings. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for our many, many <coughs> blessings, for being our Savior and our friend. We give back to you now a small portion you have blessed us with, so bless this gift and the giver, for it is your name, Jesus, our Lord and Savior's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand again as we sing our hymn of praise, number 333, <laughs> Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. <laughs>
There we go. All right, I'm glad to have you guys with us today. I have a jar of something. What do I have a jar of here? Does anybody know? Pennies. What makes a penny, what makes a penny like mean anything to us? What, what is it to begin with? Money. Well, what, so why is money, why, why do we need money? You got to pay for stuff, right? Well, yes. Do what? Yeah. So a penny has value. Does anybody know how much value a penny has? How much value does a penny have, Tucker? One cent. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot. But what if you take hundreds? What's one hundred pennies equal? One dollar, right? And so pennies have value. Well, we like, we need these things to live. But I want to talk to you about something else that has value. You know, guess, guess what I'm going to talk about? Well, Jesus does have value to us, but I want to talk about you guys and how you have value. Do you know you have value? He's like, what does that mean? How much, am I, how much money do you think you're worth, Isabel? How much value do you think you're worth? <laughs> She's my daughter. That's why I picked on her. A couple pennies, maybe? No, we, we're not worth money. We are way, way, way more value than, valuable than any money can, uh, can even measure up to. You are so valuable to somebody. You are valuable to God. You are so valuable that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and be risen again on the third day because he loves you and he wants you to be forgiven for your sins. Did you know that? Listen to this Bible verse. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are valuable because you are God's workmanship. He created each and every one of you. He didn't just throw random stuff in a, in a pot and out you pop. He put thought and care and love to, to every person that he makes. Isn't that awesome? Yes. He did. That's the Lord's Supper. He did that. So I want you guys to remember, as you guys go through this world, sometimes things get tough. Sometimes people around us are mean. Sometimes we just have bad days. But when you have those bad days, I want you to remember that you are valuable because God made you and you are his workers. Isn't that awesome? So we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to Children's Church. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sit right there before we go out, okay? Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for these guys and girls. Thank you for their willingness to come here to be at church and their love for you. Lord, we thank you for creating us, putting thought into us and caring to us. And we're so thankful that we are valuable to you. Lord, I love you and I praise you. I ask all, I say all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
with men. He shall dwell within them, they shall be his people, and Almighty God will be with them. He shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, no more pain, the former things are all passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all said unto me, Write these words, for they are faithful and true, and it is done, it is done, it is
Thank you, choir. You guys ever wish you had that much energy? Chad has that much energy, but we just call him hyper. But when a six-year-old has that much energy, that's just normal. Well, today we are going to continue the series on the seven letters to his church from Revelation. Um, but before we get started, I want you, have you guys noticed a pattern in each one of these letters to the different churches? Starts off by introducing himself, giving an aspect of his character, Jesus does to his church. He then tells them what the, he knows about the church. He then shares with them what he has against his church. What he is holding them accountable for. He then tells them, this is what I want you to do. Or else. And then he ends with a final encouragement to all those that are listening. Well, today's letter is no different. It follows that same exact pattern as we look at the church of Pergamum. New, uh, King James Version says Pergamus. It's the same place, the same church, the same city. So if you would turn to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 today. And as our custom, if, as I read this, if you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word. And again, if you have a red letter edition, you will notice that this complete passage is still in red, meaning this is coming directly as spoken words of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So if you would look beginning in chapter two of Revelation, verses 12 through 17, this is what John records here. And it says, and to the angel of the church of Pergamon, write, the one who has the sharp two edged sword says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who behold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you have also some in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, thank You for what we see John writing and recording here from the revelation that You gave him. Lord, speak to us today as we look 
at this passage on the church at Pacerma and how it applies to us today. Bless us today. And it's in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our living Savior, we pray. Amen. Okay, start off with Jesus again describes himself to this church. Look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Capernaum or, or Pergamon, write, the one who has the sharp two edged sword says this. See, the one, and notice that's capital. He's talking about himself, Jesus Christ, the one with a sharp, or sharp two-edged sword. Now we may think that he is sitting there holding that sword like a warrior getting ready to swing that double-edged sword. But that's not what he's talking about. This sword is coming out of his mouth. He says that in verse 17, but he also says, or excuse me, in verse 16, but look at chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Here in this first chapter, John is describing what he saw when he saw Jesus Christ. We already know that he's holding the seven stars in his hand. We know that out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Why is that important to us? That it's coming from his mouth. Jesus will confront His church, not the building, but us, the people, the saints, the disciples. He will confront us with His Holy Word. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing us as far as, as the division of soul, spirit, of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But I want you to understand that it is not just the spoken Word of the Lord. Or the written Word of the Lord. But look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the what? Word. Notice something strange about that four-letter word. It's capitalized. It is a proper noun. It is a title. It is a name. And the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. Here, John, the same person that wrote this revelation, 
records for us that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. The living, breathing Word of God. Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and is able to pierce flesh, bone, joint, marrow, and our very souls and heart and is able to know the intentions of our hearts. So we have to understand that here in Revelation, as, God, as Jesus is describing Himself to the church, and remember we've already said in, in, in previous sermons that every church, Jesus revealed a characteristic, something about His character that is pertinent to that church that He was writing to and also pertinent to us today. He revealed exactly what we needed to know about Him, exactly when they needed to know it and when we need to know it. So they have to understand here that Jesus sees everything and that He Himself, the living, breathing Word of God, will pierce their hearts and souls. And He knows everything that they, there is to know about them. He knows their true intentions. You guys ever heard the saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Jesus is not in concerned. Jesus is not impressed by what we intend to do. He is only impressed by what we do. You guys realize that our Christian faith is an active faith. And not just action, but immediate action. When Jesus tells us to go, any delay is disobedience. Obedience is immediate. Those of you that have raised teenagers or have teenagers know that you tell them to do something, what do they do? In a minute... Hey, go take a shower. Why we have to tell teenagers to do that, I don't know. Because, good Lord, they have to be able to smell themselves. 20 minutes later, where are you going? Take a shower. Why didn't you go then? You could have been back downstairs watching TV. Or you could have been in your bedroom you could be doing homework. Why? What were you doing? I don't know. You guys realize we do that same thing to God? Has anybody done that to God besides me? We all have. We do it all the time. Anything less than immediate obedience, immediate obedience, is disobedience. When God says, I want you to go, what does that mean? It means to get up off your rear end, move, and go. Not when you decide to do it, 
But when He told you to do it, Jesus knows those intentions. Okay? Now, what does He know about this particular church? What does He know about us? Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast My name and did not deny My faith, even in the days of Antipas, My witness, My faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now there are several things that we have to look at and understand to fully understand what this passage is talking about here. The first, where you dwell. Jesus knew where His church was and, and the difficulties that they dealt with on a daily basis. He knew everything about them. They could hide nothing from Him. He knew what they dealt with. And then He goes on and says, I understand you were where Satan's throne is. Well, what does that mean? There's been a lot of debate about why He is calling Pergamum Satan's throne. Well, let's look at some of the things that, were, that are important about Pergamon that would make Jesus call it Satan's throne. First, Pergamon was the political center of the Roman government and capital of Asia, Asia Minor. This was the capital of the Roman Empire politically and as far as power in Asia Minor. Pergamon was also the home of temples to Greek and Roman gods and three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. In fact, this is where Caesar Augustus, you guys know that name, Caesar Augustus established his temple for his own worship. So that people would call Him Lord and worship Him. His temple was here in Pergamum. Pergamum was also the center of worship of... I, and please, forgive me for this, my slaughtering of this word. Ashlepias. That is a... God, a Greek God or Roman God of healing and knowledge. This God was represented by a serpent. And in fact, in his temple, in this temple to this God, the temple was full of snakes. And people that were sick, that were ailing, that had affirmities, they would flock to this temple in hopes of being cured. And they would spend the night in this dark temple where they hoped that during the night in the darkness, one of these snakes would slither across them or touch them as it moved around and they thought that this heat, the, the touch of the, one of these serpents was being looked at and seen as the touch of God. And that they would be healed. But I want you to think about something. 
You remember in Moses where the people, the, the, Jew, the, the Hebrew children start, or in Moses, but you remember back in, during the Exodus, they started complaining to Moses about the food that they were getting. And, 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 and they were complaining about this, they were complaining about this, and they were, they were just complaining about every little thing. So God sent snakes, poisonous snakes into the camp and people were dying left and right because they were bit, being bitten by these snakes. And, and God tells Moses what to do as Moses begins to pray and the people start calling out and, and praying and asking for forgiveness and asking for healing. And God said that Moses was to shape serpent and put it on his staff and lift it up. And anybody that would gaze upon that serpent, lift it up, would be healed. But you remember what John records in chapter 3? Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Words from Jesus. We don't look at a serpent. We don't look at anything being lifted up other than Jesus Christ. But you have to understand this. Jesus Christ was on the cross. He is no longer in the cross. Jesus Christ is not buried in a tomb. So we cannot go and lay in a dark place hoping to be touched by God. Because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross and because there is an empty tomb where His body is no longer laid, that we have the Spirit of the Holy God that dwells in us and changes us. And it's only by God's mercy and grace that if we have affliction and we can be healed. But just as He told Paul, my grace is sufficient. Even if He doesn't heal. Even if He doesn't make us whole. God's love, mercy, and grace can still be evident in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of these reasons, all of these things that I talked about in Pecurmum, it is all reason for being seen as where Satan dwells. This church dealt with stuff every day, just as the church in Smyrna did. They were being ostracized, they were being persecuted. And Jesus knew it. Here it says that he, you held fast to my name. Despite difficulties, they held fast to their faith in Jesus Christ. And then, Jesus said that our faith belongs to Him. You see that up there? It says, 
and did not deny whose faith? My faith. But look at what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Well, what's the gift of God? Grace? Faith? Salvation? Yes. All three of them are gifts of God. We know from reading this verse in Revelation that our faith is not our faith. It is Jesus' faith that we have been given as a gift. By grace you are saved through faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Where do we get our faith? From Jesus. The living, breathing Word of God. Then he talks about Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. Here is something that we have to understand. is that The Greek word martis means witness. It wasn't until later times that the word martis, martyr, began meaning what we see as being what it means today. But what the word actually means, if you combine ancient meaning and current meaning, it is a witness that is a true witness willing to die. Even in the face of death, they hold true to what they believe. And they witness and they testify about what they believe even in the face of death. Antipas stood as a witness for Jesus even to the point of death. There is no other record of this man anywhere in history, anywhere else in the Bible except for this verse. This little part of verse 13. But let me ask you a question. <laughs> Does it matter if history records us? Jesus knew His name. Jesus knew His name. So what did Jesus have against His church? Look at verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who are in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've already talked about the Nicolaitans. But look at this. Teaching of Balaam. Who was Balaam? Balaam, found in the Old Testament. Balaam is famous not because of what Balaam did, but because of what his donkey did. You guys remember that story? Balaam was determined to do what God told him not to. Balak wanted him to curse the children of Israel because he was going to fight the children of Israel. And, he, and, and God wouldn't let Balaam curse them. 
So Balaam starts telling, telling Balak, here, well, I can't do this, but what you can do is you can get them involved in idolatry. You can get them involved in this. Hey, send some of the women over there and get them to start uh, fooling around. How many times have we been messed up because God has, or not God, Satan has sent distractions? Well, that's what Balaam was teaching Balak to do. But Balaam was going on his way to go to do something even more. And God put an angel with a fiery sword in his way, blocking his path. Balaam couldn't see him. The donkey saw him. First, the donkey pushed up trying to get away and pushed him against the side of the mountain. Balaam got mad, cussed at the donkey, beat the donkey. Got back up on the donkey, kept trying to go. The donkey went into the ditch. Balaam began to beat the donkey again. This happened several times. Finally, as Balaam begins to beat the donkey, the donkey, God opens the donkey's mouth and he's like, Why are you beating me? Haven't I been faithful to you this whole time? Haven't I been a good donkey? Do you think I'm doing this stuff on purpose? I'm doing this stuff to save your life. And God opened Balaam's eyes and he saw that angel with that flaming sword standing in his way. But here in Jesus' church, there were people that were allowing the influence of the idolatry and the immorality. See, the biggest thing about the, the, the Greek and Roman temples is that part of their worship was temple prostitutes, both male and female. And part of the worship was immoral, immoral acts. Immoral sexual acts with these prostitutes as part of their worship. So within this church, there were people that were bringing that immorality in. They were bringing the influences of the outside world. They were bringing the idolatry and the eating food that was offered to, to idols and their worship celebrations. They were bringing that into the church. And it was being a stumbling block to those around them that were there to worship. And then, teaching of the Nicolaitans. we already been told about the Nicolaitans. These were followers of Nicholas, the, one of the first deacons that did not see overindulgence, did not see immorality or anything else as being an issue. They would say something like this, we are covered by grace, and because of grace, everything is permissible. But it wasn't just that everything was permissible. They were, would say something like, we are not destroying Christianity. We are not here to destroy your faith. We are here to share a new and better modern version of a faith. And modern version of Christianity. We would call this today progressive Christianity. We're not dealing with anything different in society today. 
than the church in Pergamon was dealing with. Satan can't create new things, but he can reuse old ones and paint it up and make it look like a brand new barn. But inside it's still that same old barn. That's what this church was doing. People were bringing these false teachings and and false doctrine and heresy into the church. So this rebuke was a rebuke for the entire church, the whole church. You go, well, wait a second. If it was only some of them doing it, why is he rebuking the whole church? Because he he was rebuking those that were guilty of the heretical, heretical beliefs and teachings, but he was also rebuking the ones that were allowing it in in the first place. So basically what was going on in this church is even though they were holding to the faith of Jesus Christ, they were turning a blind eye to false teachings and and, and satanic influences and allowing them into the church without saying a word about it. What we would say that, well, we, we don't want to offend anybody. We would rather have a full church and allow these people to come in as long as they're here Just let them have their own beliefs and we'll be okay with that. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Not according to what I just read in Revelation. And Jesus Himself says, if you are not for Me, you are what? Against Me. We cannot have it both ways. We are either of the world or we're of God. We cannot have it both ways. That's what Jesus has against this church. Now here, let me ask you a question. And yes, this is a bold question. If Jesus had an issue with it here in Capernaum, why would Jesus be okay with it today? I have the answer to that. You ready? This is deep. He's not. He's not okay with it today. Why? How do I know that? You can say, well, times change. Yeah, but God doesn't. His Word never changes either. God doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. He told us that in the first letter. The same yesterday, today, and what? Tomorrow. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The great I Am. God does not change. We do. And God knows our intentions. We are told that if God is for us, who can stand against us? Nobody. Everything that Satan throws at us from the outside, God stands against and we will never be harmed by what's thrown at us from the outside. 
But what happens? We allow these things to come in and we start getting eaten away from the inside out. Sin, when it's allowed in. Herical teachings, when it's allowed in. It is like a cancer and it begins to eat us and eat away at us from the inside out. Jesus saw this and that is what Jesus had an issue with. So, what does Jesus want the church to do? Look at verse 16. This is very simple. He only tells them to do one thing. Therefore, repent. Or else, I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the swift sword of my mouth. Listen, He only tells them to do one thing. Repent. Repent from the heresy and repent from allowing heresy. Very simple. He's telling to the whole church here, repent. Repent those that are, that are living by and teaching this heretical stuff. This ungodly teaching. Repent of that. But the rest of us, we need to repent of allowing it into the church in the first place. For not knowing the Word of God well enough to recognize it when it came in. For not knowing the Word of God enough to have the courage to stand up against it when we see it. Well, church, I'm going to tell you something. When you stand up for God against something else, it's going to cost something. It's going to cost something. Obedience to God costs us something. Those of you that knew Bob Ramsey, Bob Ramsey would say, we've got to stop saying that salvation is free. He says, yes, it's free, but it's a free gift that will cost us everything. And we have to realize that. Following God will cost us everything. And we need to be willing to hand over everything. Or else. I love it, the fact that the Bible says, or else. Jesus says, or else. You do this, or else. Jesus will not wait to punish His church. Look at what it says. It says, I will come quickly. He's not going to wait. He's not putting this off. You either do this, you repent, or I'm coming quickly. I will not wait. And then what does it say He's going to do when He comes quickly? I will wage war against them. Jesus will fight against those corrupting His church and those that allow His church to be corrupted. He's going to wage war against both. Those that do it, and those that sit by and allow it to happen. Both equally guilty. Now look at the final exhortation. Revelation verse 17. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a name written on the stone which no one knows but he, will rece- he who receives it. Again, this message is to everyone that follows Jesus Christ. This message is to the church and everybody that hears it. He who overcomes. This hidden manna is God's perfect provision. The true bread of heaven. Okay, the true bread of heaven. Look at John 6.41 Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. What bread came down out of heaven in the Old Testament? Manna. Here Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now this white stone, in the ancient world, this had many associations. It could be a ticket to a banquet. Anybody that had the white stone was a permitted in to the banquet. A lot of times a wedding banquet. A sign of friendship. You had a white stone, you were considered to be a friend of whoever gave it to you. Evidence of having been counted. You know, when they were doing censuses. When they came up and checked in to do the census, they would be given a white stone so that they could prove that they had already been counted. Or a sign of acquittal in a court of law. So if you were standing before the judge and you were found not guilty, they would give you a white stone so that you could not be charged with that again because you were found guiltless. (laughs) Think about that. We are considered the bride of Christ and He is coming when the banquet is ready. We are a friend of God through Jesus Christ. We have been counted among the faithful. Our names are written down. And we have been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have been claimed not guilty. Regardless of what the meaning it is most definitely an assurance of blessing. A new name. Abraham was given a new name. Saul was given a new name. Not because of anything that they did, but because God, Sarai, was given a new name. Again, not because of anything that we had done or they had done, but because of what God had done. This name shows the intimate relationship we have with God. You think about this. Ginger and I have been married. This coming November will be 31 years. There are names, like she calls me Pooh Bear. Don't do it. She calls me Silly Old Bear. I call her Ginge. 
I'll show you why if you ask me, because they misspelled her name on the inside of my ring when we got married, and I never took it back to get it changed. It literally says Ginge. I call her darling, honey, sweetie. Nobody, nobody else better ever call her that. Why? Because we have an intimate relationship. We are married. We know more about each other than anybody else knows. Good and bad. That is the same type of relationship we should have with Jesus Christ. And this also is an assurance that our name is written down in heaven. Now here is my challenge, church. Are you willing to stand strong for the things of God? Are you willing to be faithful to the Word of God? To stand on it? Are we going to allow the influences of the outside world to come in to our church? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you met Him in a personal way? Do you know Him in an intimate way? If you don't, this is your invitation to meet Him. Please allow me to introduce you to Him. If you are here and you don't have a church home and you feel God leading you to join this fellowship, this is your invitation to do so. As we sing this song of invitation, there's only three verses. Only three verses. Don't wait. Don't wait. Would you stand as we sing hymn 334, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, 334. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Spirit washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day This is my 
my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest, I am my Savior, am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above. This is the last chorus. Sing it like you're at a football game or we're at the basketball game last night and you are cheering for the victor. Sing it like you mean it. This is my story. This is my song. Raising my say. song, raising my Savior all the day long. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to my challenge as we end. You are going out onto the mission field right now. When we walk out that door, you're on the mission field. Know who you belong to and act like it. This is also, Joan and Art, come on up here for a second. Some of you guys may not know Joan and Art, some of you do. If you remember back to our youth Sunday and Chad was preaching and we heard a knock at this door. You guys remember that? And we couldn't figure out why, we thought it was part of Chad's sermon. It was Joan and Art coming for the first time and they've been coming ever since. But Joan and Art are leaving. Today is their last Sunday. They are moving to Georgia and they close on their house Wednesday and they move on Thursday. But Joan wanted to say something to the congregation before they left. They've already told me, he said, we weren't moving, we would be coming here. Okay? But she wants to share something and after she shares... I'm going to ask Whitey if he would mind dismissing in prayer.
traveling crazy, because it's going to be blowing six hours. And we're going to have a U-Haul truck, car hauling it behind, and four of us, five of us, some in the car, and another car, and some in the truck. It's an end all. So <laughs> we, we would love your prayers. We would really appreciate it. Yeah, we got a lot to find the back of that truck. <laughs> <laughs> Our son is coming Tuesday to help us start loading Tuesday and Wednesday, and hopefully we can do this. So, but again, we love you all. We pray for you all. God bless you. Yep. Well, thank you. Would you mind standing out there with me as people can say bye when they come out? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye with me, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we conclude this service today, let it be a time that we open our hearts to be able to go out into the mission field, Lord, and deliver your word. Lord, be with this family as they leave this area and just be with them and keep them safe and protect them. Guard them and let them do your will when they get into Georgia. Lord, I ask you that you be with each person here today, that you would keep us safe on our journeys and bring them back to the next appointed hour. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. <laughs>